So I think we see a dramatic slowdown in consumer spending next year, which um, leads to a dramatic decline in corporate profits. So you get a, a slowing, maybe a recessionary economy because of the spending, and then you get an equities bear market because of um, crashing um, corporate profits. And you put those two together and it's a very bad year, you know, very different from 2023, which was 2023 was a, um, a kind of a turbulent year, but most of the trends were either flat to slightly up. Well, ne next year it's going to be turbulent uh, with most of the trends pointing in the other direction. So that's, uh, that's my outlook for the year ahead. And that's probably the best case scenario. You know, there's very few ways that it can get better, but lots of ways that it, it can come in much, much worse. Than Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm its founder and your host, Adam Taggart. How stable is our current system, economically, geopolitically, and socially? Well, the market seems confident it's quite stable. But you don't have to look that hard to find evidence of stress fractures, from recessionary leading indicators to struggling consumer households to the frozen real estate market to the breakdown of trade through the Red Sea to the loss of faith in once premier establishment brands like Harvard to the polarization and cynicism of this year's U.S. presidential election. What's more likely to happen from here, ascent or breakdown? To discuss, we're fortunate to welcome monetary and macro analyst John Rubino to the program, author and co-author of numerous books, including The Money Bubble with James Turk. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Adam, good to be back. And congratulations on your uh, new media empire. <laughs> Very impressive <laughs> couple of months you've had. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we've, we've definitely been running really hard to try to get things off the ground here. But uh, yes, incredibly pleased and, and grateful for how uh, well so far, at least thoughtful money has been received and the amount of viewers we have watching this stuff. It's been great. Now that we've landed the great John Rubino, I expect all those numbers to just go bananas from here, John. <laughs> well, I hope uh, to help at the margin. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. And uh, just full disclosure, John, you and I are good friends. We've been good friends for a long time. Um, we have lots of conversations, um, you know, privately where we're just one of us will call and we'll just sort of talk for hours about what's going on in the macro world and whatnot. I'm kind of hoping today's discussion will be just like that, except we'll be letting the audience sit along here with us. Um, so get a number of questions based upon some of the things we've talked about recently in our own discussions, but also um, what you've posted on your, your Substack as well. Um, before I get into those specific topics though, um, let's just kick things off if we can with the general question I like to ask at the beginning. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Well, the, the long-term assessment is nightmarish because um, debt is going parabolic pretty much everywhere and that can't end badly. Um, for the year ahead, uh, you know, I think a stat that might um, help a lot of people understand what's coming is something called excess savings. Basically, during the pandemic, um, the government said to a lot of people, okay, you don't have to pay your rent, you don't have to pay your student loans, and here, we'll send you some stimmy checks, you know, so a lot of people saved a decent amount of money, and the excess savings stat is um, a measure of what people have in the bank above what they would be expected to have in the bank if previous trends had um, continued. So a lot of people ended up with some extra money, and they've been spending it, and that's why the economy has continued to grow. That money's basically gone now. Um, except for maybe the top 10% of the, um, the 
incomes out there. Uh, most people have spent their excess savings and now they're working into working through regular savings. And in a lot of cases, um, you're seeing people in order to maintain their lifestyle, start maxing out credit cards. So credit card debt is way up. It's above tr a trillion dollars now. And credit card interest um, is 20 to 25%. So you've got a right. ton of people Re out there. Record high APIs. Yep. Yeah. And you've got, so you've got a lot of people out there who are putting their day-to-day -day lives on credit cards and then carrying balances that charge them 20 or 25%, which is basically like going to the local loan shark. You know, it's that, that exact same kind of financial death spiral that you put yourself in. Um, so because of that, consumer spending, which is the driver of the U.S. economy and most of the rest of the world's economy via the U.S. economy, um, cannot grow. You know, you can't have people in that situation going out then and borrowing more money to buy big, useless things, which is basically the, uh, the driver of the U.S. economy. Um, so I think we see a dramatic slowdown in consumer spending next year, which um, leads to a dramatic decline in corporate profits. So you get a, a slowing, maybe a recessionary economy because of the spending, and then you get an equities bear market because of um, crashing um, corporate profits. And you put those two together and it's a very bad year, you know, very different from 2023, which was 2023 was a, um, a kind of a turbulent year, but most of the trends were either flat to slightly up. Well, ne next year it's gonna be turbulent. Uh, with most of the trends pointing in the other direction. So that's uh, that's my outlook for the year ahead. And that's probably the best case scenario. You know, there's very few ways that it can get better, but lots of ways that it, it can come in much, much worse than what I just spelled out. Uh, that's an interesting way to say it. Um, so um, few ways for it to get better, lots of ways for it to get worse. Um, okay, so... Uh, Great jumping off point, little concerning, obviously. Um, uh, so it sounds like, you know, you're saying 2023 was kind of the year where the, the the pig of the stimulus exited the Python, at least in the consumer household standpoint. But consumers, instead of saying, okay, the excess savings that I had are gone, I need to start tightening my belt. Um, instead, they said, I'm going to keep my lifestyle going at this this level for as long as I can, right? I'm going to, I'm going to start, you know, charging it more to credit cards, which we've seen the record increase in credit card debt levels at record APRs, as we just mentioned. One other thing that's happened concurrent with that though, has been the savings rate has come down. Um, so the current U S savings rate is lower than its historical average. Uh, this is something that David Rosenberg was talking about, which has sort of added as an additional stimulus to the system, which is that people have just been willing to save less and spend the difference uh, in this interim period that's been going on here. Um, the other thing that you you mentioned, which plays off of a, a term I first heard from our good friend Charles Hugh Smith back, you know, leading up to the Great Financial Crisis. So this was a long time ago, but it was the concept of debt saturation, where you know consumers will take on as much debt as they can get away with taking on. But at some point, they get to a point where they can't take any more on, right? Either because taking on more debt will prevent them from being able to service the current debts that they have, or the lenders just cut them off and say, look, I'm looking at your personal balance sheet. You're done. I'm not giving you any more money. And we're, we're not yet, it seems, at that point in time yet, but it seems like we're sort of hurtling towards that. 
So did I sort of capture your view of the consumer here, which is that, uh, you know, all the benefits of the free money are gone. Um, all the forbearance programs have been removed. They've ratcheted down their savings to keep things going longer. They've ratcheted up their their um, uh, debt spending. But they're kind of barreling towards this period where they're just not going to be able to continue that. Yeah. And, you, you know, it's important to understand that we're we're not dissing American consumers right now because a lot of these people... Um, are, are in very bad shape. You know, Survival we, mode, basically. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we've created, yeah, a whole generation of people who are now at the point where they have to decide between paying to drive to work, um, paying the rent, and feeding their kids. And, you know, choose two and, and right. don't do the other one. Uh, so a, a lot of people, with that, that ties into the credit card thing, where a lot of people are saying, all right, look, I, you know, I can't cut out any of those things that I can't afford now. So let me just put it on plastic this month and see how it goes. And and um, meanwhile, you've got this, you know, tiny group of maybe 10% of the economy getting richer year after year after year. So this is basically the aristocracy harvesting the peasants that we're seeing in real time, now, just a modern version of that. And um, there, there's a limit to how far you can go with a policy like that, because that, as you said, eventually people get so tapped out that they can't even get a new credit card, you know, which how, how bad does it have to be yeah. when the credit card companies won't lend you money? Because uh, that really is, you know, it's a version of loan sharking, basically, the, the credit card industry. And and it's in their interest to lend non-credit worthy people money because those guys are the ones who run up the late fees and carry a balance and somehow scrape up the, the payment to cover that 20% this month. You know, they, they make most of their money off of people like that. And if they're at the point where they're not going to lend to those guys anymore, you know things are bad. And basically, we're heading that way. You can argue about where we are in the process. You know, maybe it's today that we're going to hit that wall, or maybe it's six months from now. But the wall is coming because um, a growing number of people just flat out can't afford their life anymore. And, uh, and well, let, let me note that that's happening at historically very low unemployment. Right. So obviously any kind of spike in unemployment just makes the situation way worse. Right. OK, that, that kind of leads us into how they're lying to us. If um, if if that works in the, the questions that you have laid out, because uh, it's a very interesting story, the uh, the unemployment rate and the labor market in general, because um, the, the way the government does this is they they'll report a, a really favorable number. Um, of you know two thousand or twenty five wait in this case two hundred and fifty thousand two hundred yeah yeah generated this month and then the New York Times and the Washington Post will jump on board with positive headlines and Paul Krugman will come out and say I don't see why people are upset you know don't they realize that the unemployment rate is at a record low level and so here here's what happens um, in subsequent months the government goes back and it revises those jobs numbers down to a, a level that would be disappointing if that was the headline number originally and then um, analysts look through the jobs report for the fine print and they find out that there's actually really bad news in there and in the last one um, it turns out that full-time jobs are shrinking and part-time jobs are soaring uh, which is a sign of an unhealthy economy, not a healthy economy, because it means people are losing their full-time jobs and then having to cobble together two or three part-time jobs at 12 or 15 hours a week in order to- uh, No benefits. Just, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Nothing like that. Um, and this time around, there was a stat that I'd never seen before, but that is pretty telling. And that is that the number of people 
who are holding two full-time jobs is spiking. And, you know, if you have a good time, full-time job, the last thing you do is go out and take, uh, take another full-time job, right? So this is people who, with a full-time job, can't pay their bills and are going out and getting another one and they're working 16 hours a day and just coming home and crashing and getting up and do it again, doing it again. And, you know, they're a nightmare for their family because they, they can't be happy people while they're doing this. But th those people are soaring in this economy. So, um, you know, when you think of the unemployment be rate being very low and you think of those big jobs numbers and everything, they're kind of a mirage. It's not actually that way. And if you took out the part-time jobs, you would see that the unemployment rate is actually kind of high. And uh, that ties into the amount of debt that people are taking on because in a great employment um, economy, you don't have people maxing out their credit cards, right? Because you're making enough to cover day-to-day -day bills. So um, we have multiple signs that that's not the case out there. And that, that leads to the conclusion that the economy is heading for very rocky times in the not too distant future. Okay, so um, I, I agree with everything you've said, and I've talked a lot on this program um, about how distrustful the official jobs numbers appear to be. Um, and that said, um, I think the jobs market has held up much more robustly in the face of all the other sort of negative uh, recessionary indicators that we have. Um, and uh, you know, even things like the you know the, the the quits rate was still pretty high until recently. That's now coming down, right? So I think the pendulum of of power is switching back to the employer. My point is, is you know, we're not in an environment yet um, that we've typically see where we enter a recession, where you have like hundreds of thousands of jobs losses a month, right? And so my only point is, is is I think it's not nearly as robust as the, the official jobs numbers that come out are suggesting. But I think it's still kind of hanging in there ish, you know, even though it's it's deteriorating quality wise in all the ways that you mentioned. My point is, is, boy, if we get to a point where job losses really begin in earnest, this sort of large swath of consumer households that you're saying are just hanging on by their fingernails right now. Boy, a lot of those people lose their grip in that type of environment. Oh, yeah, that's we'll see. That's the the nightmare to come. Actually, there was a survey that just came out today that said that. Four of 10 companies that responded to the survey are planning layoffs in the year ahead. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it's starting to come and uh, it'll snowball when it does come. But, uh, you know, the, the driving force will be lower consumer spending, I think, because as consumers spend less, companies um, no longer need as many people to, um, to cover the lower number of orders they've got coming in and they start laying people off. Um, in other words, typical recession behavior. And uh, that that seems to be something that's coming in the coming year. Because, you know, a, a half a point lower interest rate does not fix any of this. And that's basically our only policy right now. You've got the, the federal government running big surpluses, or I'm sorry, big deficits. But a lot of that is just them paying interest on their debt, and that's flowing into rich people's bond accounts. Um, so that doesn't generate extra spending necessarily. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, at, at, at the same time, if mortgages drop from 8% to 6.5%, that still doesn't make houses affordable for very many people. So where, wherever you look, you need much lower interest rates in order to reignite spending. Uh, and we'll see that. You know, I think by the end of this year, um, they'll be deeply into easing and QE 
and we'll see interest rates coming back down. Uh, and then we'll see what happens. You know, it's not clear that this is fixable with any kind of an interest rate because debt is so high, but uh, we'll see if it is. You know, I, I didn't think we could get past the 2008, 2009 economy. I thought that was basically the end for the system. And it wasn't, we, we bought ourselves um, 10 more years or actually now 13 or 14 more years um, at the cost of uh, what, $50 trillion of new debt globally. Um, and we'll try that again, but the question is, will it work? And I, I think I think the numbers are just too big. So yeah, well, you know, you you get into the law of diminishing returns territory, right, where you have to do an awful lot more just to try to achieve the same impact you had before, right? And then at some point, it just doesn't work. So it'll yeah, we'll we'll see. The future will tell us what's going to happen there. But it, but I'm assuming, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of us here, but it, it, I'm assuming you think that when the next down cycle happens, the amount of policy, stimulus, response, et cetera, will be gargantuan. Yeah. I, I Well, each cycle is bigger. And the amount of QE that will be necessary to bail out this new, more indebted system necessarily has to be bigger, right? And it'll be that way around the world, in Japan and Europe, for sure, China, obviously, the U.S. Um, so, yeah, I think that... Um, the next time around will be bigger. It'll be one for the record books. But the question is, will it? Oh, you know what? And the the lesson that's going to be learned for us starting to cut interest rates here, you know, because we basically hit the level of interest rates that cannot be sustained. We figured that out. And now we've got to stop raising and start cutting. The lesson for that um, for the financial markets will be that, OK, we've we figured out that interest rates can never go back up again. Because when they do, this is what happens. But we've also figured out that we can't, you know, continue to um, pump out huge amounts of currency and run massive deficits because then we get 2022, we get double digit inflation. Um, and those are our only two choices. So finally, we're in that box where nothing works and the markets realize that there's no, you know, there's no adult supervision. There's no big fix coming when daddy gets home. Uh, and I, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But when financial markets start to, to panic, we have examples of that in the past. It's not pretty. And uh, that is arguably where we're headed because there really isn't any kind of a fix. And um, any fix you do choose makes the other problem worse, you know? So we've been going back and forth. And now we're, uh, we're at the point where it isn't clear what we can do going forward that doesn't make our other problems much more serious. Okay. Um, so we're kind of getting maybe to the punchline early here, but uh, let's think about what that means for markets and asset prices. If, if the world got to a point where it said, all right, look, we, 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 can't, we can't raise interest rates because the system just can't support it but we can't flood the world um, with a bunch of stimulus because we'll create crazy inflation and kill the purchasing power of our currencies. Even though I think push comes to shove, a politician will always choose the latter. But if enough of the market wakes up to the fact of, of, of the world really being in that bind, what happens to asset prices? Well, we, we do exactly what you just said. We, we conclude that the, the central banks of the world are gonna have to choose inflation because that's a slower process. Deflation is an immediate collapse back to the 1930s. And nobody wants to be in charge 
of that kind of an event, right? You're, you're the Her Herbert Hoover of your generation will will know your name 100 years from now as the guy who screwed up the global economy. So you're not going to do that. What you're going to do is create enough new currency, cut interest rates enough to get yourself through the next election cycle. And uh, you look back at 2022 and think, okay, that was that was disturbing, but we got through that, you know? So you you recreate those conditions. You start creating massive amounts of new currency, you cut interest rates, and so we'll get negative interest rates again, in other words, and we'll get a big jump in the money supply, in other words, um, because that's their only immediate choice. And once the markets figure that out, then then you're then you're in the Austrian School of Economics crack-up boom, right? We, we finally get these things that we've been talking about forever, where people, look at what's happening, conclude that it's the um, it's the official policy of the government to um, inflate away the currency, and they act accordingly. They dump the currency as soon as they get paid, they buy real stuff, the price of real stuff goes through the roof, that's inflation, and that scares everybody, and, and the cycle just kind of ratchets up from there until total faith is lost in the economy or in the currency. And you get, you know, what looks like a hyperinflation, but is actually a collapse of confidence in the currency. And yeah, you know, we've always been headed that way. And now it just feels like you can kind of create a scenario in which it happens sooner rather than later. Okay. And so for folks watching, you use the term crack up boom, but that's sort of what you're talking about, which is when the, the world, the jig is up. Folks realize how the game is being played and um, everybody starts dumping the currency as fast as they can because they don't expect it to hold its purchasing power. As you said, prices are real things. Go to the moon. Um, all right. So, you know, you've written the book, The Money Bubble. You actually uh, founded a, a website that you you no longer run. Um, someone else now does called dollarcollapse.com. So, you know, I, I know we've had viewers that have been very concerned about the dollar going through this process. Um, if it does, and, and feel free to clarify whether you think it indeed will or not, uh, if that's the, the true end game here, um, when will it go through this process relative to the other currencies? Um, so there's a lot of weaker players on the global chessboard than the US. Do you expect us to sort of see this coming as a rippling wave from the outside towards us? Or do you expect this sort of to happen everywhere all at once? Um, uh, to the currencies together. Yeah, well, I should premise this um, by reference what, refer referencing what you just said about um, the dollar collapse website and the book. And so, you know, I've been at this for a while and my, um, my credibility when it comes to short-term predictions is not so great. You know, the long-term thing is in place, but uh, as, I, as I said before, I thought that uh, 2008, 2009 was the end and it wasn't. So we can't know for sure what the next year holds. Um, now, um, when you look at all these um, fiat currencies out there, they're all depreciating just at varying rates. And that's how you get this whole, oh, one is strong and one is weak thing that you always see in, um, in on CNBC or whatever. And, and what that is, is just one currency falling less quickly than the other currencies. And that's been the case with the dollar for a while. And I think there's a case to be made that in in a world that's very stressful and very turbulent, that the dollar benefits, because the US is relatively safe, not just financially, but militarily and economically compared to the rest of the world. So when there's trouble in the world, even if the US causes the trouble, that tends to make the dollar 
hold up relatively well against other currencies because capital flows from China and Brazil and, and Europe to here. And that bids up the, um, well, it uh, lowers our interest rates and bids up the value of the dollar, relatively speaking. And that could happen again. So it could be that other currencies fall first. But, you know, I, it, it, it's almost not even worth um, building something like that into an investment thesis because they're all falling. You know, the dollar is going to lose um, probably an accelerating amount of value in the next five years or so, even, even leaving everything else except finance aside. But, uh, you know, the Japanese yen, the euro, my God, you know, they, they're they in much bigger trouble because they're, uh, they have very few options right now. You know, you look at Europe and Germany screwed up its energy system on such a monumental scale and, and screwed up a lot of the rest of its economy, too, by making bad mistake after bad mistake um, that um, they're doing something called deindustrialization now. They, they literally can't run the industrial machinery that used to make them such a powerhouse with um, their energy costs where they are and with the, the debt that they're taking on across Europe. Um, so they're, you know, it, it's debated about whether they're just not going to be an industrial power anymore or whether they're going to be a less of an industrial power. But either way, they're headed in that direction. And the Eurozone only functioned as a currency union because Germany was this... Uh, Germany yeah, yeah, Germany was the best run country in the world. It was a, um, a financial and industrial powerhouse, and it was potentially a military powerhouse if it wanted to be. And that made, you know, Italy's bonds and Greece's bonds, effectively German bonds, and people could buy them, knowing that the ECB, which was backed up by Germany, would stand ready to buy those bonds if there was any trouble. Well, that's all kind of all gone now, you know? So it's not clear what happens to the euro. Um, Japan has taken on more government debt per capita than any other society in human history. And if interest rates even go, uh, their, their government bond interest rates even go up to the levels of the US, which is theoretically the most AAA credit out there, um, Japan's government would be flat out bankrupt. They would be... Um, paying out more in interest than they would be taking in in tax revenue. Um, and so they would have um, an almost immediate currency death spiral once they pass that line, you know, and those things are out there waiting to happen with no fixes at all. Now, in the, in the process of that, the dollar might actually look like a strong currency because it's only losing eight and a half percent official, you know, in, inflation a year. You know, that's, that's all that it's losing in terms of purchasing power, according to the government. Uh, but it's still losing a lot of purchasing power, and it's still not a good thing to own. So at this point, you get into basically the investment thesis, which is real assets. You know, you want to buy things that uh, governments can't inflate away um, and switch your financial assets into a, a broad portfolio of real assets over time. And by the way, that doesn't mean that government bonds in the U.S. won't periodically be good investments. They were actually good things to own for the past six months, right? Interest rates uh, went down and that makes bond prices go up. So there's some um, embedded capital gains in bonds right now, you know, but it, it, it does mean that over time, the dollars those bonds pay you will be worth less and less. Therefore, the bonds themselves will be worth less and less in real terms. So you want to move out of those and into other things, you know, and uh, so, so this is all set up basically to happen. It's baked in the cake because of all the debt that we've taken on. 
And and Adam, one one thing that's important to note here is that we're only talking finance so far. There's a lot of other things out there that uh, well, exactly are, are and, much and, bigger than than finance going forward. And, and I have some of these on my list, but feel free to add you know any of the other ones that are keeping you up at night to this. Um, I, I did just want to and look, I, I mean, I, I know generally where you are, John, from from our relationship, and you know, no surprise to folks, a guy who created a website called dollarcollapse.com, you know, sort of thinks this ends badly for all fiat currencies, including, you know, the big dog on the the block, the the, the US dollar. Um, but it sounds like from what you're saying, um, it is an even more pressing issue for people elsewhere in the world, given the fact that the dollar may be the last of the sinking ships to sink. And, uh, and using that sinking ship analogy, um, Russ Gray, uh, uh, folks may remember him. He was on the panel um, and had the Future of Money panel on this channel about a month and a half ago. Um, he gave me an analogy once that stuck in my mind. Um, I've always said the analogy of you think of boats in a harbor, they all have holes in them. They just have a different number of holes. So the, the boats are sinking at different rates relative to each other. So if the Japanese yen is sinking faster than the US ship is, it actually looks to the Japanese ship like the U.S. ship is rising, right? So this is how you explain the different variations in currencies, but they are all falling relative to some absolute benchmark, in this case, the waterline, right? And, and that's where I think, you know, you can use gold sort of as a proxy for the waterline, right? They're all sinking relative to a, a fixed real asset like, like gold. Russ's analogy was, I think the U.S. dollar like the Titanic, which is it's mortally wounded, it is sinking, um, but, um, before it goes under, uh, you know, really when things get really bad, <laughs> the bow has sunk, but the stern is rising up actually quite high in the air. Right. And that's sort of an analogy as you were saying, which is when everybody floods away from, or flees from all the other currencies into the dollar at the very end, the dollar looks like it's doing great on a relative basis, at least. And that's obviously right before the whole thing slips under the the uh, the uh, ocean line, uh, ocean water line. So, uh, anyways, curious to hear your thoughts on those analogies. Yeah, yeah, I, I think ex that's exactly how it works to a lot of people. There, there are basically two ways to um, to discuss the strength of a currency. One is relative to other currencies, and that's the one that the mainstream media and, and a lot of economists use. Um, and by that measure, the dollar looks pretty good because the other currencies are even bad, more badly run, and the other countries are even closer to that that debt wall that we're all headed for. Um, the dollar looks relatively stable. But the other way to measure a currency is, like you said, versus gold, which is real money, or versus purchasing power. In other words, what can you buy with it? And by that measure, all the big currencies are declining um, at varying rates, but uh, also at accelerating rates. If you take, you know, the past five years versus the previous five years, um, it was faster. And uh, and there's no reason to think that um, the next decade or so won't be an acceleration. Although I think, you know, it's a decent chance that we have a, a deflationary year or two in there when the economy slows way down and the price of a lot of things fall. Um, so we could actually see some fiat currencies rise in terms of purchasing power in the short run. But the central bank's reaction to that will, as, as we talked about, have to be so inflationary that uh, two years of slight deflation will evaporate in a heartbeat, you know, when, when next generation QE kicks in. So, yeah, and, uh, 
but but what's going on in the rest of the world, for instance, geopolitically, might end up being way more important than this finance stuff because uh, let the U.S. be pulled into a war with Iran, and uh, it's the U.S. and Israel against um, Iran and maybe Russia or something like that, which uh, you know is, is completely conceivable given the people we have in charge of the U.S. right now who would actually kind of like that. I mean, I think there's um, I wouldn't say a consensus, but I think there's a strong um, strong strain of opinion within U.S. leadership that using um, Israel as a proxy army to go after Iran would be just as smart as using Ukraine as a proxy army to go after Russia. And, you know, that um, costs a lot of dead Ukrainians, but it uh, soaked up a lot of Russian military spending and killed a lot of Russian soldiers. And they're basically happy with that outcome. So let those guys try to pull the same thing in the Middle East and all bets are off. You know, that that cheap energy thesis, forget it. Oil is $200 a barrel <laughs> while that's going on. And, uh, um, you know, it, it's not clear what those new weapons do. I mean, when, when we start throwing um, AI-driven hypersonic drones at each other, <laughs> then there's no way to predict what that's going to turn out to be. And so, so that could be vastly more destabilizing for the world um, than 11.5% inflation in 2025 or something like that. So uh, I think the, the finance thing is clearly a crisis baked into, into the cake and waiting to happen, but it could be preempted by some other stuff. And then, you know, you get, um, what does AI do to the job market? We don't know, but we know it could be pretty serious and it could be a short-term thing as these things accelerate. So, there, you know, there's a lot of things like that out there that... Uh, that are harder to predict and are kind of arbitrary in that sense, but are things that you need to keep track of if you're trying to decide what to do with your money, because those things will definitely affect your investments. So we've got a very chaotic world coming and not just for financial reasons. I mean, right. not just for geopolitical reasons, but all those reasons combined. So, and there are a few other ones I'm going to throw on the fire here too in a second. Um, but I, I go back to your your comment at the beginning that I think it was a good way to sort of sum up your view, which is not a lot of ways for a better than expected outcome to come out of this, but a lot of potential ways for a worse than expected outcome to come out of this. So I sort of see you saying, look, on the financial side of things, the economic side of things, it's really just math and the math makes you pessimistic. But there are these black swans or maybe gray swans, because we can we can kind of see where the risk could come from that could pop up along the way that could just upset the apple cart a lot faster, a lot more violently and a lot sooner. Yes, um, lots of things can happen that, that, you know, we're not necessarily plugged into. I mean, we, you know, we know the Middle East is a mess and the Russia-Ukraine thing is by no means settled. We, we know those things. But we don't know what the next level of something like that could be, at least in, emotionally, we don't know it. You know, you can say intellectually that a broader Middle East war is a bad thing, but um, the reality of it would be nightmarish if it really got going. And, oh, and we can't forget China and Taiwan. We actually have people in the U.S. government who think it would be an excellent idea to preemptively stop China from trying to take over Taiwan. In other words, take out a bunch of their, their, um, their naval capability. Because China is a threat in the future, we might as well take them out now while we can. And there are people who believe that. Um, and some of them are in positions of power. 
And some of them, no matter who gets elected next time around, some of them will be in positions of power again. Uh, and so that's the kind of thing that uh, we're just one bad policy or one mistake on the part of a fighter pilot or a Navy captain or something like that from, from something much more serious. All right. Um, and look, I'm not trying to freak people out here, but this is a good exploration of all the, you know, the risk spectrum here. And so one of the one of the things I have on my list here to ask you about is, um, you know, you say we're one bad policy, one bad decision away um, from some pretty scary things. There is definitely, I think, an increasing loss of faith in our leadership and our institutions. And we can certainly say a lot of it's probably justified. Right. Um, but, you know, everything from, um, you know, distrust in, you know, the Federal Reserve's response and, you know, everything from waiting too long to tackle, quote unquote, transitory inflation to did the Fed and Congress, did they did they were they too excessive and all the pandemic response that then distorted everything and exacerbated the wealth gap and then got us 9% inflation and all this stuff, right? So I would say that there's there's a lot of kind of earned skepticism, you know, on the financial side of things. But then you have things like, you know, what's going on right now with with the um, uh, the major, uh, you know, college presidents that were called in front of Congress, right? And then the whole plagiarism issue with Harvard and whatnot, like, you know, you have some long-term institutions really kind of long held up as the best and brightest of what America had to offer that are now getting tarnished and, and damaged reputationally in a way that's going to linger for a good long period of time um, and is changing behavior. You know, uh, applications to Harvard this year were down more than they've ever been down before. Um, in fact, they rarely ever go down. Um, then on the political side of things as well, you know, it's it's already a pretty mosh pit like um experience, you know, environment in, in the presidential campaign. Um, but we have things like, uh, you know, the the Secretary of Defense, who we just realized is basically a, a hospitalized and incapacitated. And we're finding out that the White House didn't even know about this. Right. So we have the um, the uh, SEC that uh, its Twitter account just got hacked yesterday. Right. That announced that, you know, oh, we've approved the Bitcoin ETF. And then, of course, Gary Gensler had to quickly, you know, retweet. Nope, nope, nope. We got hacked. Ignore that. Right. So there's this increasing sense of either like, my gosh, we're just run by clowns or um, we just don't trust the folks that are leading our, our top institutions to be making the right decisions. Um, so that's got to have some corrosive element in here where, as you said, the cost of making a bad choice is increasingly getting high but also the 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 faith in the system is eroding at the same time that just sounds like a very like dangerous cocktail to me yeah the uh, the peasants are losing faith in the aristocracy and uh, it, you know it, it in some cases it's because the aristocracy is a bunch of evil geniuses and in other cases it's because they're a bunch of inept morons you know so to take your choice you you have examples of both out there but what's clear and i think what's being becoming clearer to people with time is that most major policies are designed not not as a, a bug but with as a feature to enrich the already rich and impoverish everybody else and you know you look at banking and monetary policy every time the banks cause a big crisis the government steps in and bails out the banks so the, the bankers don't lose any money then it lowers interest rates dramatically 
which makes stocks, bonds, and real estate, financial assets, go up in value, which enriches the guys who own them, who are already rich. And, uh, and it makes um, the interest paid on bank CDs, which is the saving vehicle of the, the rabble, um, go down. So it's harder to live um, in retirement and harder to get yourself to retirement. So, you know, that that's an obvious set of policies that are designed to help the aristocracy. And then same thing with military policy. You know, we stomp, we stomp around the world starting wars and funding proxy wars and things like that. Well, who benefits from that? The, uh, the arms makers fund both sides in a lot of these wars. Um, and then they get very rich. And then they turn around and they, they finance the um, political campaigns of the war hawk neocon politicians out there. So it's this closed loop of money taken from taxpayers and enriches that whole sector of the economy and the political system. And then, you know, pandemic response. <laughs> you know, I'll put my tinfoil hat on here and tell the whole story. We, we fund the creation of a dangerous virus. It gets out. We immediately lock down the global economy, which um, enriches um, a bunch of um, e-commerce companies and impoverishes all the small businesses out there. And then we uh, mandate that everybody take the vaccine, which funds, um, which sends hundreds of billions of dollars to the uh, pharmaceutical companies making the vaccines, who then turn around and finance the political campaigns of the different group of politicians, or maybe the same group of politicians. People are starting to see that that's how it works. And so they don't trust the guys in charge anymore. And, uh, you know, that feeds into trust in all the other systems, one of which is money. So that takes us back to the investment thesis. If people lose faith in the guys running the currency, a fiat currency only exists because we have faith in the guys running the currency. And that leads us to a currency crisis. So um, everything that we see happening out there leads back to the imperative to get your finances out of the uh, the system. Oh, and then the uh, then there's this thing called the great taking that is getting a lot of press lately, um, which I'll, we can come back to that in a minute um, after I finish completing the investment thesis thing. But get your money out of the, uh, the financial system and get it into real assets. You know, if you can buy farmland, you know, Bill Gates, richest guy in the world is now the biggest owner of farmland in the world. Why is that? Um, there's a reason for it and you should be following his example. If you if you can have land that grows food, you're halfway to being okay for what's coming. And it goes on and on, but you know, it's a thesis you know, your listeners have definitely heard of before, but it's, it's becoming more imperative all the time. All right. Um... So the reason I, I, I bring up this sort of risk of a social crisis or uprising, um, I feel like I'm bringing it up more and more on these conversations um, because I, my concern is, is I agree with the trajectory of, of what you're saying, you know, which is we are squeezing the middle class more and more in this country. It really is bifurcating into an economy of a, a small number at the top who are getting an increasing amount of the the harvest of the economy um and then everybody else who is you know feeling like their prospects are just being diminished away at this just inexorable grind right and i think um coming out of the pandemic that's become increasingly clear for people is they've just seen cost of living just skyrocket in a number of essentials and there's just no way for them to escape that right 
So um, I guess my question here on this, John, is just like, you know, when I, when I, when I look forward, I, I do worry that I don't see a really clear path where things get materially better over the, the next decade or several decades for the average person. Um, I don't see a lot of these trends that are pressuring against them going into reverse um, any, on any timeline that makes me feel comfortable. So do you worry about some sort of social breaking point where enough people just say, this thing's just not working for me, and you start getting more drastic responses from the populace? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as Gerald Salente likes to say, when when people have nothing left to lose, they lose it. Um, so civil unrest is just a part of, of gigantic financial crises. It's uh, it's a normal part of the process. And then you get leadership change, obviously, you know, and what's happening in the U.S. or really around the world now is you're seeing populist politicians um, getting a better and better response because populism right. is not a, uh, a political philosophy like communism or capitalism or something like that. It's basically an attitude where the politician says, look, we, we know you're being screwed over by the, these rich guys over here. So you put me in office, I'll go over there and get back what's been stolen from you. And, uh, you know, the policies that flow from that are all over the place, but it's the attitude that sells really well in a political environment where people are getting more and more disgusted and less and less trustful of the establishment. So we're going to see that going forward for sure. I mean, Trump obviously is uh, a manifestation for, for that. He's not, you know, if you don't like Trump, you should see that uh, he's not the problem. He's a symptom of the problem. Um, and if you do like Trump, then okay, good luck. Hopefully he, he begins the process of getting you back what's been stolen from you. Um, but Vivek Ramaswamy in the U.S. has has come up with some brilliant rhetoric around the populist theme that I think, um, it, you know, is there to be stolen by all the other politicians. You're going to see people around the world saying stuff like that uh, because it's so well done and it's going to work. You know, in, in Germany, the uh, what they call far right is but is actually just uh, populist. Uh, the far-right party over there is now arguably the most uh, powerful political party in the country. It's going to have a chance to form a government one of these days. In um, the Netherlands, same thing just happened, where the far-right yeah. party is forming a government. France, Marine Le Pen might finally get to be president there. So we're, we're seeing the uh, you know the peasants with the pitchfork thing play out on the political stage. And if that works, then that's as far as it'll go. We'll get some policies that start the process of, you know, won't fix things anytime soon. You, you can't get rid of this much debt without incredible pain. But if you've got policies in place that are at least um, obviously aimed at helping the bottom 50% of the economy instead of harvesting the bottom 50%, then, you, you know, you have a chance of getting through it without massive civil unrest. But... Um, Massive is the key word. There will be a lot of civil unrest as this thing goes along. Uh, and um, a lot of it's going to be, you know, shocking, right? We're a very well-armed country here. So it, it's completely possible that you're going to see uh, uh, people, well-armed people on the right fighting well-armed people on the left in American streets, you know, and, and oh, hopefully God. not. But uh, it's, it's a completely, you know, when you look at the number of guns per capita, and look at, at how angry so many people are. Because well, let's let's go back to um, the people that we were talking about who are putting their lives on credit cards. Because what happened to them was they were just getting by, a lot of them. 
And then the pandemic hits and the lockdowns and all the new currency creation and inflation spikes. And so basically their day-to-day -day life got 30% more expensive because of government policy. And, uh, and now they are literally having to decide, you know, who doesn't eat, you know, or who doesn't get to drive to work. Um, well, th those are going to be really angry people unless um, clear policies are put in place that help them. And, you know, you could go back to the stimmy check thing and just say, okay, you get $500 a month going forward in an open-ended way. And people will, will at least, you know, that'll put gas in the car. Um, so that will at least... Um, be seen as the government actually helping people instead of um, bailing out J.P. Morgan Chase so they can pay mm -hmm. um, record bonuses to their investment bankers at the end of that year. You know, you, that, that's the kind of thing that gets you riots. But um, ongoing financial help of some sort is the thing that limits riots. So it could be that it has to be something like that, which, you know, as a libertarian, I don't like the idea of... Um, continuous government payments to people. But I think as a stopgap measure to keep us just from spinning into complete chaos, that might be something that is a tool that actually works. We'll have to see. But but that's going to be the debate going forward is how, you know, how do we keep people from just burning down the state house? <laughs> and, uh, and there needs to be um, policies in place that uh, that do that. So it'll be an interesting debate with, you know, it's it's a tough one for people from pretty much any um, part of the political spectrum because it violates a lot of the basically um, bedrock truths. You know, mm -hmm. as a libertarian, I'm saying, yeah, maybe we need UBI. Maybe we need, uh, you know, um, universal basic income for a while. Uh, and that's something that, uh, you know, a libertarian would never say that. <laughs> but here I am saying it. So uh, it's going to be a confusing political time. Well, you know, is, is you're familiar with the Neil House at a fourth turning, you know, if, if we're indeed in one, and it seems like for sure we're seeing a lot of the signs that we are, um, those are just characterized by upheaval, right? And uh, and sometimes that upheaval makes really strange bedfellows. Um, uh, I, I, you know, let's all cross our fingers and hope we we avoid some of the worst of, of, of what you're thinking potentially could happen here. But John, it sounds like it's safe to say you expect that going forward, for the foreseeable future at least, we're going to see populism on the rise, not the wane, correct? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's no way to avoid that because um, populism is what happens when people are impoverished. And debt impoverishes you. That's just what it does because you get the money now, you spend it, and then you got to pay the interest going forward. So you're less well off going forward than you would be otherwise if you didn't have to pay the interest. Well, all of society is in that spot right now. So we get poorer without a doubt going forward. Um, and it becomes a question of how do you allocate that regression? In other words, you know, most of us are gonna move backwards to an extent, but who, who moves backwards 70% and who moves backwards 5%? Uh, so that'll be the political debate going forward. And see, that's the opposite of the, the past 70 year political debate when it was basically who's going to get how much. Nobody's going to get less, but every, everybody's going to get more. Right. When the, when the so, pie is growing, yeah. it's super easy to legislate. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and see, this generation of politicians have never, have never had to do that. They don't have the faintest idea how to say no to an important constituency. But all they're going to be doing is saying no going forward. It's just the magnitude of the no, right? You know, if... Uh, if it's a really big tax increase, let's say, that's 
that's going to be baffling to them. How do you sell, a, a, for instance, a, a tax on high frequency trading to Wall Street, who has been funding your campaign for the last 30 years? Right. You're going to go to them and say, okay, you're going to make um, 100 billion less dollars a year because of this tax but I need to do it. You know, I can't stay in office without doing it. Please let me do it. They're going to say, um, you know, for sure, fine, whatever. And then they'll hire an assassin to kill you or something, you know? <laughs> um, so, and you'll, you'll know that as a politician, that's probably that, what's going to happen to you. So that's going to be the debate. And there's no way around it when you borrow too much money, whether you're a, an individual or a family or a country, excessive debt makes you poorer. That's just all, all there is to it. And so we're, you know, we're coming into a time when people already don't trust the government. And a good government has to tell people explicitly that they're going to get poorer going forward. So it's not clear how that works. And, you know, I don't have a good answer. I don't think I could really um, sit down and, and write out a paragraph that sells this to people at a town hall meeting or anything. I just, <laughs> I just think it's going to be incredibly messy. And, politically, uh, yeah, it's politically, yeah, uh, just it's a Gordian knot, um, but needs to happen, obviously, but probably won't. Um, all right, so I, I want to get to the part of the conversation, John, where we're we're we're, we're bringing people back off the ledge, right, and saying, hey, you know, at least at least for you at the individual level, there's agency here. There's ways to protect yourself from stuff we're talking about. Maybe ways to even have still a great future, even if some of this stuff happens, you know, to the, the vast majority of of the world. Um, real quick though, two things. One, um, I want to give you a chance to make your comments on the great taking, because I've had a lot of comments, uh, to, to address it. And I have not had a chance to address it in a video yet. So if you could at least, you know, put your finger on that for folks, I'd appreciate it real quick before I do that. I just want to give you props, um, to the point you just made. This was something you said a long time ago. I want to say 10 years ago or so. Um, I remember you in your writings saying that, um, in many ways, given the challenges we're going to have to face going forward, we have the exact wrong talent base uh, in our government, um, where we have, you know, now it's clear to everybody that we have a gerontocracy, that we have these people that have just been in politics forever, and they don't want to give up the, the their grip of, of the reins of power, right? But all those people have built their career with a rising tide, right? As you said, in terms of, you know, prosperity to, to, to spend. Um, now that we're getting into a contractionary phase, these people just don't have the musculature. They've never had to develop it. So you can make the argument that they are actually the exact wrong people you want running the system in this type of environment. So I just want to, I just want to give you kudos for calling that, you know, a long time ago. And now we're actually beginning to see direct evidence of that. Um, okay, to the great taking, um, can't make the the whole video about it. But what what, what do you think is important to note here for folks? Yeah, the, the Great Taking is a book and a documentary that came out just lately and has been getting a you know a ton of attention, especially in the sound money space. You know, people who think that uh, hard times are coming, um, absolutely um, by the the ideas in the Great Taking book and documentary. And the you know the, the central thesis is that securities laws have been secretly changed over the past decade so that we don't actually own our bank accounts and our brokerage accounts. So our stocks and bonds and our cash, basically, 
um, aren't really ours. They belong to the financial system. And in the next crisis, where because obviously a crisis is coming because the, the collateral that's out there is nowhere near nearly adequate for the amount of debt that's against that collateral. Um, our um, brokerage accounts in particular are basically just going to be confiscated. We're going to get zero um, from that part of our savings. Um, now, I'm not a securities law expert, and so I'm not qualified to judge that argument, but a lot of people have been looking at the thesis and coming back and saying, yeah, that's right. You know, a lot of people with some expertise. So, you know, if that's true, then it perfectly fits the story that you and I have been telling uh, your audience for the last hour, right? That uh, the, the people in charge are harvesting the peasants and they're set up for an even big cathartic harvesting where, um, where they basically just take everything. You know, they've been taking a little bit at a time for the past few decades. And now in one fell swoop, they're just going to take it all. And uh, again, I, you know, can't judge the, uh, can't judge the argument, but some other people have and say it's real. And if it's true, then, uh, then it's totally keeping in character with what we know about the guys in charge right now. And, right. Uh, you, you know, you want to think about civil unrest, let that happen. <laughs> See what happens. Well, yeah. So, so I, I haven't watched the documentary or read the book yet. Um, but um, just a reminder for folks, I have been super heads down cramming for the security exam. So when I'm not forming, uh, filming these videos, I'm I'm pretty much doing that. Um, assuming for a second, were that to happen, I mean, to me, I just don't know how you don't go instantaneously to the torches and pitchforks overnight, especially this time around, because you're really declaring war on the the people with resources, or at least who have them until you've stolen them from them. And, uh, and those are people that actually have, you know, certain degree of influence and, and ability to mobilize. Um, I just don't know how you wouldn't go to like a Sri Lankan, you know, millions show up at the presidential palace and just forcibly drag the president. Out. Like, I don't, I don't know how you wouldn't get to a state like that real quick. If the vast majority of Americans who had assets got a note the next day that said, oops, sorry, it's all gone. Can you imagine what the baby boomers would do? <laughs> I, yeah, I, my, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they'll take it from the boomers first because they'll wait until the boomers are old enough where they're like, hey, you know, we're not too worried about a bunch of 80 year olds, right? Hey, Adam, we are never going to be too old to shoot our AK 47s. Okay. <laughs> you know, well, well, we'll be in our wheelchairs out there firing automatic weapons at the, you know, the governor's mansion or at the, the Fed headquarters or something. Because, you know, we, we've, had basically charmed lives. You know, the baby boomers grew up in the best time for jobs, the best time for investing, uh, the best time to be a homeowner, you know, and nobody's taken that away from us. Um, so unless, here's a scenario where let's say another pandemic comes along, they lock us all down, they uh, pass gun control laws, they they go to our houses, take the guns away, then the, the great taking happens. Okay, so that's, that's a scenario where at least they would have a chance of succeeding, where it wouldn't be civil war, you know? But uh, I don't think you can just do it with everybody as they are today, because we will um, presumably hit the streets. And you know, the other part of this is the, the police that would be expected to control that kind of civil unrest are, are basically of the, um, the 50%, right? You know, they're, their friends and family are the ones who are being impoverished. 
and the ones who are having their guns confiscated. So it's not clear that the uh, the National Guard and the ATF and even the FBI would be on the government's side in a situation like that. So then you get into the, the really intense um, kind of civil unrest where the government doesn't trust the army anymore. So I don't know. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just spinning scenarios here where there's no answer to any of it, but it's all, you know, it's completely conceivable, one thing following from the other. Well, th th thanks, for thanks for demystifying the great taking. But yeah, yeah. It, to me, it's like if that happens, then we have just fallen off the cliff into totalitarianism and, and you know, Jesus, let's see what would happen then. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> not saying it can't happen, but God, would it be terrible? Um, all right. Well, look, um, like I said, I want to try to walk people off the ledge um, here and say, hey, look, um, you know, John, I don't I don't consider you um, a, you know, gloom and doomer guy who just says we're all screwed and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, I know that there's a lot you think people can do in terms of how to position with their money. I know that there's a lot that you think people can do positioning with their homestead and their lifestyle and things like that. So um, let's tackle the money part first maybe two questions. One is what kind of market outlook do you have for 2024? And secondly, um, what type of assets do you favor in this environment? Yeah, I think 2024 is probably a bear market just because you get a recession or even a little bit of a downturn with stocks as expensive as they are. You know, the, the S&P 500 is, is in one of those ranges where in the historical past, uh, whenever it gets this richly valued, there's a crash afterwards. So it's it's valued that way. The economy is slowing down. Corporate profits are going to go down. Equities bear market is the most obvious thing in the world there. So um, stocks probably tank. Now, the question is, what happens to commodities in that kind of an environment? Because commodities are super cheap relative to stocks. So you mm -hmm. would think they would outperform stocks. Um, but in, um, in a recession, commodities frequently fall too. So you could get an equities bear market that pulls down um, gold, silver, copper. I, it's hard to see anything pulling down uranium at this point because uranium exists as a kind of a separate story out there that, that's almost immune to the business cycle. But the rest of the commodity complex is at risk in a deflationary recession. But I, I think much less of a risk because it's already cheap relative to stocks. So stocks could fall a long way just to get to the point where they're fairly valued versus commodities, if commodities don't move at all. Um, and so I think gold and silver are um, good things to own. If you don't already own them, you should be dollar cost averaging into them because we shouldn't necessarily be looking at the um, the first order effect of effects here. You know, the, the economy slows down, stocks tank, then what, you know? That's the thing you should be aiming at. And the Fed is going to panic. It'll jump in. It'll start easing again, start cutting interest rates back down towards zero and maybe even negative. And that is a phenomenally good environment for other forms of money like gold and silver, but also for commodities, you know, because the, um, for instance, the copper story is very good fundamentally. We don't have enough copper to electrify the world, but we've decided we're gonna electrify the world. So copper is gonna be in very tight supply and probably in a rising price environment for a long time after whatever happens in 2024. So look at things like that, you know, the, the right kind of real estate will do very well. So in other words, things can't, governments can't just inflate away. So be paying attention to stuff like that because this is potentially 
one of the uh, the life-changing markets for people who get this right. So now we're in the positive part of this. You know, it right. took a long while to, to, <laughs> to get to the optimistic part of, of this, but, uh, you know, the crises that might be coming will create opportunities that are commensurately huge. Watch, watch the movie, the, the Big Short. You know, a handful of, of uh, hedge fund guys understood that housing was going to tank and they placed bets that were too early, you know, on that. And they lost a lot of money for a while, but then it worked out and they made fortunes, life-changing money. One guy made $20 billion from, from those kinds of bets. Well, that's coming. So what do we want to do? I, I think that, uh, you know, the kind of shorting that they did during the big short might work again, because if, um, if equities are overvalued and we're heading into a, a recession, which will lead to a bear market, then learning how to short certain stocks is probably a good thing to learn how to do. You know, it's uh, um, you you could probably just use put options on the S and P five hundred and the Nasdaq, which are very liquid, easy bets to place um, as your um, you know your big short analog. Just buy those things, um, and if you know buy longer term, so you have a, a couple of years for it to work out. Um, and and you probably have a chance at uh, a ten bagger in options like that, depending on what kinds of options you buy exactly. But uh, you, you have a potentially big winner there just because the market is set up so perfectly for that kind of a bet. Um, and gold and silver miners and copper miners actually and uranium miners, you know, the mining stocks in the commodity space have not done nearly as well as the metals in a lot of cases. So they're cheap relative to the underlying metals. And we're, we're entering a time when um, the fundamentals might not be bad for the miners because oil prices, which we haven't talked about yet, um, have gone down lately. And um, you know it's possible for some technical and technological reasons that oil doesn't just soar again, that it stays kind of um, at these levels are a little bit lower. That's good for miners because they use a lot of energy in order to get things out of the ground. Well, you, you cut the price of their energy and their margins widen. So for instance, a, a gold miner might see the price of gold going up while the cost of energy goes down and they get these really wide margins with lots of good cash flow and stuff like that. And all of a sudden they're um, Wall Street darlings. You know That could easily happen to the gold and silver miners. Uh, so the best of them might be five baggers and the the you know the little lottery ticket type companies in that space could be 10 baggers you don't need many 10 baggers to completely change your financial life and uh, the point of this is that having a few of those gives you the capital to protect yourself and your family when things get really crazy out there so these bets aren't just because we want to get rich they're because we want to be able to protect our loved ones and the more capital you have the better able you are to do that so so there's both a you know personal greed aspect to this and a um, an altruistic aspect to it. So whatever makes you more comfortable and energizes you more <laughs> when you're looking into this stuff. All right. Well, really well said, and I'm glad that we're here at the point of of, of some optimism here in the story. Um, I want to note two things. Um, one, uh, folks, if you're not experienced with shorting, um, if you're not experienced with owning mining stocks, which are highly volatile. Um, and, uh, you know, most of the time I'll say at least over the past decade, you know, have been more, much more widow makers than they've been profit makers, um, to John's point in the right conditions, they can be ferociously, uh, 
they can appreciate ferociously. So no doubt they, they can't be a great path to, to great returns. But I just want to say, if you're not experienced in uh, investing in them, highly, highly recommend if you choose, you decide you want to start getting some experience, you do so under the guidance of a professional financial advisor who is experienced in them and can help guide you both in terms of positions to actually take and which stocks to buy, but also just what makes sense for you in your portfolio, given your own personal situation, needs, risk tolerance, all that type of stuff. Now, if you're looking for ideas on specific you know, stocks to, to look, companies to look at, stocks to buy, et cetera, John, I believe you actually share a lot of stock picks with the companies that you track through your Substack. Is that true? Yeah, that, that Substack has a portfolio that I've, I've created of um, gold and silver miners and the junior miners in that space and uranium, uranium miners and some short candidates, things like that. And the deal is that I have to open every position that I recommend on the Substack. So we're all in it together, for better or worse. Like it. And You've got skin in the game. Do you, do you yes, mind do. showing a little leg here and just sharing the names of one, one, two or three companies that, that you particularly like right now? And then, of course, if folks want to learn the full list, they can go to your Substack. Sure. Well, the, the uranium story is so great that uh, it, it bears um, some expansion. Um, basically, a lot of the countries in the world um, decided that or, um, nuclear power is bad and they closed down a bunch of nuclear plants and and uh, took a lot of the other ones that were in the pipeline out of the pipeline. And, and so demand for uranium, which runs nuclear plants, went, went down um, and the uranium miners stocks went down and everything. But lately, in the last couple of years, uranium has come back into style. Um, nuclear plants are opening again. Countries are realizing that they can't get by just on solar and wind, um, but they don't want to you know, restart their coal plants or anything. So they're, they're building a lot of new nuke plants. China in particular has this massive pipeline of nuclear plants, and there's nowhere near enough uranium coming out of today's mines to feed all of these new nuclear plants coming online. So what that means is the price of uranium has to go up in order to incent new miners to come along and, and um, supply the new nuclear plants. Well, there, there's a, a in that kind of a situation, you can start with the big names in a space. And as um, people, first of all, stop hating the industry and then start liking it, they, they, the, the big guys, even though they're reasonably well known, have a great run. So they're um, one of the, um, the biggest winners in my Substack portfolio is Cameco, which is the bigger, sort of the Exxon of, uh, of uranium. And it's, um, it's got a lot of different divisions doing different things in that space. And it, it mines a lot of uranium. And it's almost doubled in the past year um, without actually making all that much more money. You know, uranium, the price of it has been going up. Uh, but um, not necessarily enough to account for the stock prices in that space are going up and people are moving into that space. So, uh, you know, a good portfolio of uranium companies is probably an excellent thing to own going forward. Um, in the gold and silver miners, there are these things called um, um, royalty companies that basically don't actually go out and mine gold and silver with all the risks that that involves. They finance emerging mines on really favorable terms because it's hard to finance um, emerging gold and silver mines. So the uh, the guys who can do it get very good deals. And, and so they basically build themselves streams of gold and silver coming in at very favorable prices. So when gold and silver 
prices go up, um, the royalty companies generate massive cash flow. So if you just own the, own the royalty companies, that's almost all you have to do in gold and silver. There are a lot of other interesting plays out there, but uh, you know, some uranium stocks, some high quality royalty companies in gold and silver. And sorry, and, just, just just to push for the, the, the showing of leg here, is there yeah. a streamer that you would particularly encourage folks to look at right now? Okay, there, there's one I just mentioned that I, I like. It's a medium sized one um, called, um, Oh my God, am I going to forget the name here? That would be terrible. Oh, um, Sandstorm. Yeah, Sandstorm. Sandstorm. Yeah. And basically what they did was they're, they're a royalty company. So they went out and they bought their future growth for the next five or so years. They borrowed a lot of money to do it. And so they bought some potentially very profitable royalty streams by buying another company and by buying some royalty streams individually. And so now they've got quite a bit of debt. Um, which is weighing down their stock price. But at the same time, the royalty streams they bought are working out nicely. Um, so that right now, um, they've got a margin, which is the difference between what they pay for their gold and silver ounces coming in and what they can sell those gold and silver ounces at of like $1,700. They make $1,700 per ounce of gold right now. And that's giving them cash flow that they can use to pay off their- To beat down uh, that debt. Yeah, yeah. And so if debt is the problem and they're going to be, you know, every quarter they're going to be coming out and going, okay, we took out another $40 million of debt with all this cash that we're generating. Um, that's They're going to solve that problem very publicly and the stock price could rise dramatically because, uh, you know, once the debt's gone, they've got all this cash flow coming in with nowhere to put it. So they'll buy back stock and they'll pay dividends and- uh, it's potentially just a really good story. There are other stories out there like Sandstorm, but that's that's one of the interesting ones. But, you know, a portfolio of five comparable royalty companies uh, ought to do just great in the next 10 years. You know, it ought to be, even though they're, they're well-known companies to an extent, they could easily be five baggers in the aggregate where, where, where you make five times your money without a ton of risk because they're not super risky compared to, for instance, a straight-up gold miner. All right. Well, look, um, I got to wrap things up here, John. Um, again, uh, I, I, I love your partnership just on our private talks in this public one as well. Like our private talks, I could go for another couple hours here, but I have to wind it down. Um, I'm at the point where I ask the question, where where can folks go who have enjoyed this conversation? Uh, where can they go to learn more about you and your work? I presume your Substack is the best place for them to go? Yeah, that's that's it for me. I'm at rubino.substack.com. And uh, it's a newsletter that's basically aimed at actionable ideas for getting through the next decade. Um, and it's not just financial, although it does have a lot of stock market related stuff in it, but it's a lot of lifestyle stuff, too. OK, great. Well, um, look, John, when I edit this, I'll put the link to your Substack right up there prominently on the screen. I'll also put it in the description below this video, folks. So folks, if you just want one-click access, just look below the video here and you'll find the link. Um, all right, well, look, um, I've got one more question for you, John, um, which I'll ask you in about a minute so you can think about it um, while I do some housekeeping. Um, we've been talking a lot about, well, ton of things, but we've focused largely on the financial aspect. Um, in terms of um, a positive, constructive investment that someone can make in their life that's not money-related, what would you suggest? All right. So while you're thinking about that, real quick, folks, um, just three uh, three updates, and, and you want to stick around to hear these. Um, the first is, obviously, if you've liked this conversation with John, would like to have him 
come back on again, uh, perhaps in the second quarter to give us an update on how he's seeing the world, uh, please let him know by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Secondly, I've been talking about uh, the fact that Thoughtful Money is going to be having a conference uh, in March. Uh, we've finally locked the date down. Uh, it's going to be Saturday, March 16th. Um, I just got Lacey Hunt. I uh, got his confirmation that he will keynote uh, this conference as well. For those of you who have watched my previous conferences where Lacey has keynoted, you know how special that is. I'm super excited for that to happen. More details will be coming out soon about how you can register for it, sign up for it, et cetera. Um, I'm still finalizing the details, which is why I don't have a URL to give you just yet, but just mark your mental calendars for March uh, 16th and, uh, and uh, more to come. Um, last, I uh, just want to remind folks about my Substack. Uh, I publish a lot of information there for free during the week about everything going on at Thoughtful Money. Uh, there is a premium uh, service there as well, where you get my Adams notes, my, my detailed cliff notes summaries of, of all these interviews, including this one here with John. Um, but in addition to that, and some of the other things that you get for the premium um, uh, subscription, an important one that you also get is discounts to Thoughtful Money events like this upcoming conference. So um, uh, again, I'll be sharing all the, the pricing um, as soon as I get everything locked down. But just to, to let folks know, especially if you're already a premium subscriber, um, we do everything we can to get people the best value for the conference. So we'll have an early bird price that'll be out there for a generous period of time where folks can save uh, a healthy discount, you know, something in the order of magnitude of 30% or greater on the full ticket price. Um, but if you uh, act... Uh, well, at any point in time, but especially if you act at the early bird point in time and you're a premium subscriber to the Substack, you will get an additional attractive discount on top of that. So think of this premium subscription as almost like a like a discount card, like you get at Costco uh, for anything that, that Thoughtful Money does from an event or product standpoint going forward. Um, all right, John, we're now here at the end. What is a good non-money related investment that you would encourage folks to consider adopting? Well, Adam, there's this thing called skill stacking that is in career counseling. And the, the idea is that um, if you add, you don't have to be great at a bunch of things, but if you add a few skills to your repertoire, um, it makes you a lot more um, valuable in the job market. For, for example, if you're pretty good at something, but then you become good as a public speaker, you automatically become more valuable as an employee. You know, you, you have a chance of becoming the boss instead of the employee going forward. If you can, you know, stand up in front of the crowd and uh, and get your point across. Well, that and that's absolutely true. You know, you should be acquiring skills like that if you want your um, career to be more successful. But that also works in the whole prepping kind of thing that you and I talked about, where, you know, there's a lot of things we're going to need to be able to do going forward. Um, a lot of challenges and the better able we are to meet those challenges, uh, the more likely we are to be successful in uh, surviving and thriving in what's coming. And, uh, you know, so examples of that would be, can you grow your own food? And, uh, you know, a lot of people have the idea that, oh, well, if, you know, if things get tight, I'll just put in a garden. Well, there's more to it than that. You know, you <laughs> it's need a to, big learning know, curve. Yes, there is. And, and so, you know, go up that learning curve now, become somebody who's capable of supplying 20% of your family's food. That's a huge deal. Same thing with like, doing drywall, doing um, car repair, doing uh, electrical related things, learning um, to be proficient and safe with firearms, learning to physically defend yourself. You know, there are all these things that might come in handy later, right? In scenarios that you can easily envision. 
the more of those things you stack onto your, um, you know, your persona, the better able you are to uh, get you and your friends through probable hard times that are coming. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't have to be great in any one of them. You just have to be slightly proficient. If you're just reasonably good at five or six new things, you know, over the next few years, then you've, uh, you've given yourself a much better chance of uh, coming through the next few years in great shape, you know, and, and you can begin wherever you are with whatever you're interested in. There are classes out there um, on um, Udemy or, um, or on YouTube, places like that, where you can begin acquiring skills with very little cost, very little effort, and you just go from there. Right. Or in your local community, where in addition to learning the skills, you're also building community at the same time, right? Creating relationships. So um, very well said, John, as you know, especially from my, my, my past businesses I've been involved in, um, huge fan and advocate and proponent for resilience, which is really what you're talking about here, increasing your self-reliance. Um, so uh, wholeheartedly support everything you mentioned there. I just want to underscore one element, which is uh, the you want to break it down into um, the learning curve or the cost of, of actually developing the skill. And then you also want to look at it from a scalability standpoint. And in general, with these types of skills, much easier to scale them once you've come up the learning curve on, on how to do it initially. And gardening is a great example, right? To go from having no experience to, to growing 5% of your calories, really, really hard, takes a long time. But once you know how to grow 5% of your calories, to increase that to growing 20% of your calories, pretty easy to do. You just scale it, you know, the things that you already know how to do. Um, so it's one of these things, um, like in the mining sector, I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, it's going to take off at some point. So you want to get positioned in it early before it takes off. The time you want to invest in learning these skills is when the sun's still shining and everything's still fine. Get, you know, use that time to get up the learning curve. And then only if you need to worry about the scaling things up, if conditions demand you do so, because that's the easier part. Well done, Adam. Nicely said. All right. Well, thanks, my friend. We'll look, we'll wind it down here for folks that still have any stamina left and are hungry for um, continued uh, discussion like this. Um, I just want to flag the interview that I did earlier this week uh, with uh, Jim Carson. Um, great discussion. Um, we don't get into quite this territory, John, but a lot of what he talks about in terms of the framework for how he sees the global economy and markets working over the next couple of decades does plug a lot into to what you were saying here. So folks, if you'd be interested in watching that, I'll put up a link to it here. John, it's always wonderful having you on the program, my friend. Thanks so much for coming on. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.